hello everybody again. Um, just to say last week I put out some uh, reading resources. So the first one is Pre-Slavery Christianity by Dante Forston. The second one is The Gods of Africa or The Gods of the Bible, a very important book by Leonard Nierango, can't say his name. And then the other one is How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Thomas C. Oden. Those are the three uh, sources that you guys can go and check out for further reading. But let us get into our presentation today. So if you kindly get the presentation up on the screen for me. Okay. We're going to be talking specifically today about the history. So we're going to dig into this uh, presentation from a couple different angles today. So follow me as I build this case. This screen says the telling of Africans, Africa's ancient Christian heritage has weakened for many centuries, though it needs telling. There is some reservation to think that anyone from the West is adequate, adequately equipped to tell Africa's history. And so Black History Month is very important because a lot of history, a lot of our history was lost in translation. A lot of history was lost in translation or transportation. And unfortunately, there's a lot that we don't know about black history, um, about Africa, about Israel. Black history is not just a part of American history or British history. Black history is the foundation of all history. As we kind of showed last week, that is dependent upon whether you're a person that believes in what the Bible says. But black history is the foundation of all history. It's not just a part of American history or a part of British history. It is a foundation of all history. And so speaking about Africa's ancient Christian heritage and tradition, these things have declined and our understanding of black history has declined as the centuries have gone on. Even though it has to be told, there's some reservation when it is told. When someone tells black history, there's a reservation that we almost instantly have. It's almost like anyone from the West is not adequately equipped to tell Africa's history. Some Westerners won't, some Westerners won't want to hear Africa's ancient Christian heritage because of their own prejudi prejudices against black people or what they see of Africa through modern life today. But perhaps I believe this perception is changing. Um, last week, I referenced Chadwick Boseman. Um, now, while Black Panther is a fictional movie, it's a movie that's put hope in the next generation. And so the perception of Africa is changing as we're seeing more people are flying out to African nations like Ghana, Nigeria, um, to enjoy life during Christmas. And so the perception of being African is changing. Because when we were younger, we wouldn't actually claim our African heritage. Um, I actually used to say I was Jamaican, funny enough. Uh, I know a lot of Africans who wouldn't claim their African name because it was different to a lot of the people within their classes. And so being African, the perception, the the the, the happiness, the, the pride that we have in being African is changing throughout the centuries. But back in the days, we'd hear your blick, you have thick lips. But these features are now being celebrated in our society. And so we're slowly coming to an, in, into an agreement with who we are. And so as the perception changes, as the perception changes of black people, the quest for who we are becomes a thought. You know, I'm starting to come into agreement of my African heritage. I want to go back to Ghana and find out more about my people. You know, the quest for more information changes as we accept who we are. And so this is why I'm saying the story of African history needs to be told. But also it needs to be further developed by research into areas that hasn't been examined before. And so, especially 
needs to be something that's championed and told in our households. And so as we continue to build this case, I'm going to ask you, who are you to speak about African history? Who are you to even have a right? Who are you to even have a mouth? Who are you to even dare speak about African history? Who are you to speak? And so my attempt to explain this should be understood that this is an early effort. What I'm giving you guys today isn't, I guess, it's what I've gained through my own research. It's an early effort for all of you who hear me today in the future right now to nurture on. Everything that I present before you today is not me saying this is the be all and end all. It's me saying I'm giving you this information, please, for the love of God, nurture what I'm giving you, sit on what I'm giving you and improve and reflect upon what I'm giving you. Reject what you need to reject, correct what you need to correct. But what I'm giving you today is what I've researched and it's everything coming from me. I'm no historian. But everything that I'm giving you is for this generation to nurture on and to improve upon. And so my aim is to encourage you and the future generations that may watch this. My aim is to encourage you to tell the story more adequately and much more impactfully than I do. Why? Because we have an ad advantage as Westerners. We have an advantage. The advantage we have is we have an, a Western accent. And so I'm speaking to all of you that are listening right now. The advantage we have as black people is we have an, a Western accent. People around, around the world will listen more to us because of the linguistics that we possess. They will have more of an inkling to hear us out. But if you have an African accent, you will be accused of exaggerating in a Western world. And so because you have a Western world, you have because you have a Western accent, you have an advantage to tell this story and people listen to you. So I believe God is raising up new voices right now with Western accents to build upon what I'm presenting you today. And I believe those voices are each and every one of you that are under the sound of my voice. As I present this stuff to you, I tell you to not just take what I'm giving you and say, do you know what? He's given me enough. I'd say no. Continue to dig into your roots. Continue to search deeper. Continue to expound upon what I'm giving you in Jesus name. And so we're going to be looking at Africa's influence on the Western world today. In Jesus' name, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's get into this. Okay. So last week I spoke about oral traditions um, and I spoke about how, you know, the Sub-Saharan um, Africans uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, it was written in oral traditions. You had the hieroglyphics, you had people would write down stories. But in the southern parts of Africa, it was oral tradition. People would sit down, as you can see from the pictures for those on podcast, there are pictures of Africans sitting down telling stories. And so oral traditions is a big thing in Africa. It still is to this day. When someone tells a story, it's much easier to overlook a story than it is to overlook written material. And so oral traditions, when I pass a story to one person, it can be mistaken for Chinese whispers. You know, it can be mistaken for somebody adding their own uh, flavor onto a story. So oral traditions cannot be verified. What can be verified are written accounts. Right. So when I'm talking about oral traditions, I'm talking about messages that have been passed down by speech, by song. They can even take on the form of performance, as you can see from the, um, the person with the mask on here. Uh, these oral traditions would be acted out. Africans would act out oral traditions through song. They would put on uh, masks and costumes to enhance the imagination of those that they were presenting the story to. And so these things will be things like proverbs, fables, folk tales, narrations, proverbs, sayings, songs, oral traditions help 
helped us as Africans to make sense of our world and our culture. It wasn't written text that made us understand the world. It was the oral traditions that our chiefs and our ancestors and our elders would pass down to us when we were in Africa. And so Africa is known for a rich tradition of storytelling. And so I know some of you know about the Mami water spirit. Or you'd hear stories about if you go over that bridge, there's actually fairies underneath there that turn into dancing fairies at nighttime. The Africans were all into superstition. We have a rich heritage of telling stories. We have a rich heritage of dancing with our hips. And we have a huge tradition when it comes to rituals. But unfortunately, there's not much written text about these stories, nor is there much written text about how to do these Ugandan dances or these Congolese dances. You, we don't have tips on how to do these things, what we would gain, what we would glean is insight from elders that would pass it down. What we would get is our parents passing down values traditionally to instill wisdom into their children. And so, unfortunately, as I said last week, as time progressed, oral history um, became secondary and written truth became primary. Oral stories though, as I've been saying, through and through is that it's not enough to establish us in the world with technical, 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 <laughs> I can't even say it, technolo technological advancement. Listen to that stammer, that is wrong. And our prejudices of um, African superstition stories cloud our judgment to even listen to Africans when they tell us stories. So what I'm implying here is that hi um, written history is very important. And so I wanna read you a poem. Um, and if you could all just take your time to listen to the words of this poem. There's a um, slave trader who went to Bristol and his name was Edward Colston. And he was renowned in Bristol for establishing Bristol. I'm going to read this poem to you. Just take it. Now, Edward Colston is held as the beacon for this trade when the reality is that through it, through it, Bristol was made. Bristol profited so many ways. To name them all would take us days. But trade, commerce and stature is to name just a few of how through African people suffering Bristol grew. Imagine not being allowed to speak in your natural tongue and imagine not being allowed to educate your young. Then over time, your ways are lost and your history is forgotten and you become a part of the world where you belong at the bottom. The thief who did it said that they're the civilized race. They keep rewriting history to make their case. But if we look at the facts and the facts alone, who was uncivilized and savage? That's easily shown. And so what I'm implying here is that our history, the oral traditions that parents would pass down to their children in times of slavery, those things were taken away from us. They were taken away from us. And we entered into a world where we belonged at the bottom. And so today we're going to be looking much deeper into our roots. We're going to deal with this topic from four different perspectives. Um, we're going to be looking again at speculation. Last week I touched on a bit of speculation. We're going to be looking at biblical history again. I'm going to just kind of gloss over what we spoke about last week. Then we're going to go into recorded history because I believe it's very important that we don't neglect the history that was around the time. The Bible is our focus, is our standpoint, but also we must look at written history and not discard it. We are spiritual people, but we're not foolish people. And so we use logic when we're looking at the Bible as well. Science, history should aid and abet the Bibles. The Bible and history and science don't conflict. They actually come together. And so we're going to be looking at recorded history.
um, and we're going to be looking um, a bit more at the biblical history to root us. Then again, we're going to get into recorded history of the Greeks and then the Romans and see how slavery connects with Christianity. So we're going to be looking at the African slave trade today. We're going to be looking at the Greeks impact in the known world and the Romans impact on the known world. And we're going to find out why this ties into black history. Then next week, we're going to be looking at the theology. And so let's get into our account today. And so I said last week, we went through the accounts of Cush being a black man coming from the line of Ham who came from Noah. And we speculated last week that Noah was a black man. He could potentially have been an albino according to the speculation. Um, but what we're saying is that Ham and Cush were black people. We know that. We came to that conclusion. We know that the Greeks called um, the Cushites the burnt face. And so on the screen right now, it says this. When the Greeks first translated the Bible from Hebrew, they changed the word Kush, which refers to a black African civilization, to Ethiopius, Ethiopia, meaning the land of the burnt face people. And so also, as we're going into this, I wanted to kind of go back to Nimrod and I wanted to bring some speculation in about Nimrod because I gave speculation on Noah and I touched on Nimrod, but I didn't give, I believe, a lot of speculation surrounding who this person was. And so Nimrod, an interesting thing to know about Nimrod, as you can see on the screen, is that Nimrod's name actually isn't Nimrod. Nimrod means rebel in the Bible, right? A lot of scholars actually agree that Nimrod is Gilgamesh. Now, if you've heard of Gilgamesh anywhere, we're going to kind of explain who Gilgamesh is. But a lot of scholars agree that the story of Gilgamesh that was found in the 1900s is actually the story of Nimrod. And this text was found in the Sumerian text in Turkey. And it's a similar story. Some say the author of Genesis wouldn't call Nimrod by his name Gilgamesh. So they just called him rebel. Nimrod means rebel. Food for thought. Um, and so there's a thing called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and we're going to look into that a little bit right now. And so... It says the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the great works of literature and one of the oldest. It was first composed in ancient Mesopotamia during the second millennium BC in the Akkadian language. And an excellent translation is given by Andrew George. The narrative is divided into 11 books comprising about 3000 lines in total. If you would want to read the Epic of Gilgamesh, it, you've got a great translation. I put it on the board. It's by a, by a man named um, Andrew George. Check it out. OK. And so um, these tablets were found in the mid 19th century by a Turkish man. Um, and he found it in the library of the Assyrian king. OK, so the insight on Nimrod as Gilgamesh, um, as I've said, do further studies. And also last week I touched on Josephus and what Josephus said about Nimrod with the flood and that he built the Tower of Babel so that a flood would not um, overthrow them again. So Nimrod's story is shrouded in myth, in truth, in fact. It, Nimrod's story is so interesting. And so as well as the speculation about who Nimrod was, I wanted to kind of understand the ancient world. And I wanted to understand the ancient world and how they viewed creation how the ancient world viewed creation. How did the earliest human beings view creation aside from the Hebrew scriptures that we have today? And so Mesopotamia, what was their theology? What was their view of God? What was their ancient anthropology? What was their view of human beings? What was the ancient cosmology, their view of the world? The ancient people who were first on the planet, how did they view God? 
how did they view human beings and how did they view the world okay so for the sake of those on the podcast i've got a picture of i haven't even got a picture but there's a thing called anuma elish anuma elish is a story of creation that came from the babylonians the babylonians had a story of creation themselves amen they had a story of creation themselves. So I did a little research on this in theology school whilst I was studying the creation accounts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And Enuma Elish is a story that is similar to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In this epic, it gives us the Mesopotamian or the Babylonian view of God. All right. And this epic, this story, these scriptures that they had called Enuma Elish was recited every single year in Babylon. And this story that the Babylonians had was the story about the birth of the gods. It explains mankind's relation to the gods and it shows a um, it shows a hierarchical kind of standpoint with the gods in terms of the, how the gods actually were. So in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, they actually had social classes. The Awilu, A-W-I-L-U, were the upper class. The Mushkanu, M-U-S-H. K-E-N-U were the middle class and the Wardu were the slaves. Babylon had a social class. Here's what they believed. In their belief system, they believe that there's two occultic powers fighting in the skies. They believe that there's two gods fighting in the skies. And these things come out in the terms of seasons. These gods fight as seasons. So when there's a, when when spring comes, they believe that the god of light has won the war. And when snow comes and rain comes, they and thunder comes, they believe the other god has won the war. So they believe that there's two occultic powers fighting in the skies. This is what the ancient Babylonians viewed of gods, right? Now, what we remember from the ancient Babylonians is that Nimrod or Gilgamesh was a black man who set up Babylon. So these are black people's views of God. If you watch the last session then you'll understand where i'm going with this as i said this epic anuma elish is one of the oldest sources of information in the world and it concerns the birth of the gods mankind and creation and so in the beginning i'm going to explain their how their, their view of creation and then we're going to kind of slide it to make you understand why i'm going in this direction their beginning story is that there was a god named apsu and this God was the begetter. He was the one who created the heaven and ground, but he didn't name it. He had no hate name for the heavens and the earth. And his name was Apsu. He was the creator. But besides Apsu, there was a female God. There was a female and she was the one who birthed it. And her name was Mumu Tiama. She's the one who gave birth to creation. The epic of Enuma Elish then goes on to tell us that these two creator gods, Apsu and Mumu Tiama, gave birth to lesser gods, right? These lesser gods, when they were given birth to these lesser gods, these lesser gods started to wake up Apsu from his sleep. So Apsu would be asleep. These lesser gods, these smaller um, divinities would start to make loud noises and they'd wake up Apsu every single night and distract him during the day. So Apsu, the creator god, decides that he's going to kill these smaller gods. But then another god named Enkai kills Apsu and he kills Apsu when Apsu's sleeping, right? Then another god named Marduk comes and he agrees to kill the female god Tiama in exchange for sovereignty. So he kills the creator or the mother of the um, creation. He kills her in, in, in exchange for sovereignty. So we know. So what we're getting from this creation story is there's a fight in the heavens, essentially. There's a fight between the gods, 
All right. When this god, um, Marduk, when he kills Tiamat, the one who gave birth to creation, he splits her heart and body in, 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 in pieces. And then he throws her body up into the sky and creates the, the stars. He creates the seas. He creates all these things with this god's body. Then Mar Marduk, what he does is then he creates mankind from Tiamat. And what he says of mankind is mankind is savage and mankind will serve me. So what we can see from this, the Babylonians theology of who God was, is that the gods lusted for power. The gods were chaotic. They were rebellious. They, they cheated. They created the world out of destruction. So mankind was created for glory. Mankind was um, created savagely and created to serve these rebellious gods. That was the Babylonian view of, of God's theology, their view of mankind, their view of the world. God, these gods had a fight in the cosmos. So their view of God is chaos. And so Babylonian culture saw the universe as hierarchy. They saw that there's bigger gods and there's lesser gods. And what they done was they made Babylon copy it. So there's hierarchy in Babylon. This man is on top. This man is beneath. This one is my servant. That's what they did. This is if, if the Babylonian gods were sinful or chaotic themselves, it explains why Babylon was extremely sinful. It explains why Nimrod was a mighty hunter against the Lord, because Nimrod saw himself as a deity. So the Babylonian creation story, it echoes Genesis 1 in certain ways. It's not identical, but it echoes it. The order of events is similar. There's a fight in the cosmos. As we know from Revelation that the Satan was cast down to the earth. There was a fight in the heavens. The Babylonian creation story, their epic, has certain elements that fit in with the book of Genesis. Now, why am I going in this direction? And why am I giving you this history? Why I'm giving you this is, is food for thought for you guys to have extra study on insight into black origins, into the insight of black people before we actually came to understand what the scriptures were in its totality. Now, if you guys stick with me next week, we're going to touch a bit more on this specific area in regards to black tradition. And was did we have the right um religion before christianity did black people have the real religion before christianity even happened i give this to give you some insight into what black people believed mesopotamia believed and babylon believed that the world was done done according to hierarchy and so mesopotamia let's look at what the bible says here genesis eleven six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. So now we're getting into the Bible. Now we're getting into the Bible. So what I gave you just before that was the speculation. Now we're getting into biblical history. And this is um, this is speaking of Babylon. And God is saying they're one people with one language. Right. They're one people with one language. What I'm basically trying to imply here is Babylon were one people. So can we deduce from this, knowing that Cush, Nimrod were black people, that the racial features as well, they were one people. They were one race. Can we deduce that from the text is speculation. Right. Why I'm kind of coming here is because what we can see from the next scripture in Genesis 11, 7 to 9, it says this. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, 
Its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. What am I saying here? What am I saying here? Babylon were one people. Nimrod set up Babylon. Nimrod was a black people, a black person, sorry. What we kind of understood from the last um, session was that it was black people who founded Babylon. Okay. This tells us, tells us that the people were one. So they all had the same thought of the same demonic God stuff. They had the same thought of a hierarchy. They had the same thought of there being um, higher gods and lesser gods, higher powers. They had that thought. This is why when God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am the only true and wise God besides me. There is no other because every other uh, uh, nation saw a polytheist, um, a multiple God worldview. God said, no, I am the one true God. He was distinguishing himself amongst the other views that all these pagan nations had. Okay. So that's why I'm bringing that up. All right. So what this is showing that um, the people from Babylon, they spread all over the world. They spread all over the world. They went all over the world. So black people from that moment dispersed, whether they're black, whether they're, they're light skinned, whatever they were, they all dispersed over the world. What I'm implying is that view of multiple gods spread into the world from Babylon. That's my point here. OK. This says few scholars would contest the idea that it was Mesopotamia that what we call civilization was first assembled, with the possible exception of writing, cities, agriculture, metalworking, stone, architecture and wheels for both vehicles and pot making had existed before and elsewhere. What this is now telling us, this is from the book Black Athena. Um, if you'd like to check that out, it's a great book to read. This is telling us that that same place, Babylon, is the same place where civilization began. Civilization, government, all of those things began in Mesopotamia, in Babylon. OK, but let's look at Genesis 4. Genesis 4 speaks about Cain. You know, there's the story of Cain and Abel, um, Adam's sons. Genesis 4, 16 to 7 says this. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. Genesis 4, 20 to 22 says, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zelah also brought Tabal Cain. He was the forger of all instrument, instruments of bronze and iron. What is this showing us? This is showing us before the flood, Cain had founded a city. If you look in Genesis 4.16, it says when he built a city. I've got it highlighted in green. This shows us that Cain founded a city before Babylon. What we know after um, Cain and Abel is that God wiped out mankind but saved Noah and his sons. What we know is that Noah had three sons, Japheth, Shem and Ham. We know Ham had Cush and we know Cush had Nimrod. And we know Nimrod is the one who set up Babel. OK, and what we know is that uh, mankind was uh, not destroyed um, in, at the Tower of Babel, but God actually dispersed mankind. I'm building a case here. So please follow with me. And again, if you didn't watch last week, you're going to have to watch last week to understand where I'm going. Genesis 10.1. This is the account of Shem. We're going to be looking at Shem now. This is the So one thing for all of you who are Christians um, watching this. 
we don't like to read genealogies. We don't like to read genealogies. We think genealogies are just there in the Bible to take up space. They're boring. But from what I kind of showed last week and what I'm going to show you this week is that genealogies are very important. What genealogies actually do is it shows that God cares about history. Genealogy shows that God actually interacts with people. Genealogy shows us imperfect people who are used for God's purposes. Genealogy shows us that God actually cares about family. Genealogy shows us that God actually understands our situation. And so we know that Jesus came from the line of Shem. If you look at the genealogy in the book of Matthew, actually the opening page of the book of Matthew shows us the genealogy of Jesus Christ as he descended from Shem. And so Jesus understands what it means to be human. He understands our weaknesses. This is why genealogies is something that gives us history in the Bible. Don't discard genealogies. So I've gone to Genesis 10 to show you the account, the account of Shem. Again, where was Shem set up? Shem was dispersed into Asia. Japheth went up into Europe. Ham went down into Africa. So Shem was actually the founder of Mesopotamia. We know that Nimrod went into the land of Shem, took over and founded Babylon. So Nimrod went into his uncle's land and founded something. But Shem, Shem was the originator of the place of Mesopotamia. So have you ever heard of Semites? Have you ever heard of anti-Semitism? This is where Shem comes from. When people talk about Semites, on the board, it says this, Semite, a member of a people speaking any of a group related languages, presumably derived from a common language, Semitic. The term can include Arabs, Akkadians, Canaanites, Hebrews, some Ethiopians and Aramanian tribes. Mesopotamia to the western coast of the Mediterranean, the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa have all been pro proposed as possible sites for the prehistoric origins of Semitic speaking peoples. But no location has been definitively established. Semites, Shem, it's the exact same concept here. And so in 2500 BC, Semitic speaking people had become widely dispersed. Again, this is going to Babylon. This is on Britannica.com. Check it out for your sources. 2500 BC, Semitic speaking peoples had become widely dispersed throughout Western Asia. In Mesopotamia, they blended with the civilization of summer. The Hebrews settled with other Semitic speaking peoples in Palestine. And so what we see from the Babylonians being dispersed, we're seeing Shem's involvement into it. The Semitic people were dispersed as well as the Babylonians were dispersed and they were amongst the Hebrews. There is a connection continually through the Bible. It is a huge blend of people. And so <clears throat> the spread of the Mesopotamian civilization was also met by a separate development of Indo-European languages. So now, 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 now we have to try and figure out where did these white people come from? You know, if we've established that black people are the ones who are the originators and that white people cannot give birth to black people, but black people can give birth to white people who are albinos. How did we get to the point of white people coming into the earth. How did this happen, right? And forgive me if this sounds quite, because I'm using labels here, white, and think maybe I should say ethnic, but I'm just gonna speak as I feel led to speak. How did we get to this place of, I guess, white people coming into 
what we know as black people being in the earth from the foundations. The Indo-European people originated in the Asian mountains, but they shifted west. This language was first spoken by the nomads who were north of the Black Sea. And so I'm going to ask you for, again for your sources to search Kurgan culture in Indo-European or Indo-Hittite. Now, you may have heard of the Hittites, Jebusites, etc. Search those things to get some more insight. What is a nomad? A nomad is a person who does not have a fixed place to live. They are travelers, essentially. They are travelers. That's a nomad for you. All right. So what I'm trying to imply here, um, how do we get into this? Um, all right. Check this source here from sciencemag.org. When it comes to skin color, the team found a patchwork of evolution in different places and three separate genes that produce light skin, telling a complex story for how European skin evolved to be much lighter during the past 8,000 years. The modern humans who came out of Africa to originally settle Europe about 40,000 years are presumed to have had dark skin which is advantageous in sunny latitudes. And the new data confirms that about 8,500 years ago, early hunter-gatherers in Spain, Luxembourg, and Hungary also had darker skin. They lacked versions of two genes that lead to depigmentation and therefore pale skin in Europeans today. What this is telling us is that the first people who moved into Europe were black people. This is science for you. If you feel like I'm just doing Bible and history, this is science for you, telling you that the first people who went into Europe were black people. Again, check it out, sciencemag.org. And so we've spoken about Ham, we've spoken about Shem and the Semites where Jesus came from. But what about Noah's other son, Japheth? What about Japheth? Okay. Genesis 10, 1 to 3. Let's talk about Japheth. This is the second account. This is the account of Shem, Ham and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath and Togorma. Okay. Ashkenaz, as I said to you guys last week, refers to modern day Germany and the Ashkenazi Jews are actually the Jews that we see today with the small hats on the top of their head. Those are Ashkenazi Jews. Now, I've got for the sake of those of you on the podcast, I've put up a picture of the, um, the war in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's a war in the book of Ezekiel, a war between Gog and Magog and the Kushites and the Persians and Put. All right. So there's a war between those who are blacks, the Kushites and the Persians and Libya and a war against those who are in Europe. This is in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38 says this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tabal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog chief prince of Meshach and Tabal. Again, these are Japheth's sons, all right? Now, Ezekiel 38, 5, 6 says this, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Gomer from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. All right, what am I trying to show you here? I'm trying to show you that there was a war 
between Japheth's descendants and Shem and Ham's descendants in the scriptures. Genealogies are very important for us to understand. Now, if you look in Revelations 27 to 8, um, it actually prophesies against Gog and Magog, who are Japheth's descendants. And it says this, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. This is where a lot of people bring in anti-Christ theology, where they start saying how the white people are the anti-Christ and all this type of stuff. Don't get caught up in that. Reason why I'm saying that is that the book of Revelation is very heavy in allegory. It's very heavy in symbolism. It's not speaking so much about white people. It's speaking about the people to the north. It's not speaking about skin tone. It's not speaking about pigmentation. What it's speaking about is the people who come from the north. If you look through biblical history and texts, it's not so much that Gog and Magog are the issues. What the issue is, is every single person that came to fight Israel always came from the north. All of them. You have the northern kingdom of Judah. They have issues. You have the northern kingdom of Assyria. They have issues. The north, when scripture speaking about the north, it's not speaking about geography, but it's speaking about a supernatural backdrop about a northern foe. That's what it's doing. It's speaking about a northern enemy. So when Revelation talks about Gog and Magog, it's not speaking about white people. It's speaking about people who come from the north to come and fight. As a, Again, what I'm saying is Revelation is a book full of allegory and symbolism. Okay. So I'm giving that just to speak a bit on Japheth. Now, let's get a bit deeper. What I've got on the screen for all of you is a timeline of biblical history. And this is where we're getting into today. So if you feel like everything else was just like, whoa, 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 what's going on? This is too deep. Let's start to make some sense of everything right now. I've got a timeline for you. We have traveled from the beginning. And now where I'm trying to take you is to the 400 year gap before Jesus Christ, um, Jesus Christ entered the earth. I'm taking you to the 400 years of silence. I'm taking you to the 400 years of silence. I'm taking you to the 400 years of silence. In that 400 years of silence after the book of Malachi, we see a few people enter into the scene. We see Socrates, we see Plato, we see Aristotle, we see Confucius, we see Buddha, we see Alexander the Great, we see Julius Caesar. All of these historical people that are mentioned in our history books start entering into the world in the 400 years of silence when God went silent, when there was no prophet in the earth. Just before John the Baptist came, we see Socrates, Plato and Aristotle come into the earth. Let's get into some recorded history. So what have we gathered so far? We've gathered that black people populated the earth. We've gathered that lighter skin tones cannot produce darker skin tones. We've gathered that the Hebrews mixed with the Egyptians and the Kushites. We've gathered that Babel is, was essential for the world's dispersal. We've gathered, or we can speculate that Nimrod was Gilgamesh, check that out. We know that the Shemites were actually Semites. And we know that Shem is where the Hebrews came from. And so what we can say for the very least is that the Bible is not a white man's book. Well, it's a book that includes black people. That's, that's, that's the least that we can gather as we um, have kind, kind of come to this point right now from our last session and up until now. But let's start to speak about history because I'm saying the Bible is not a white man's book, but what about Christianity? Is Christianity a white man's religion? So were Africans foreign to Europe before the Atlantic slave trade? From everything that I've given you up until this point where we're speaking about the dispersal of black people, we've spoken about Gog, Magog, Japheth going into Europe, you know, Shem going into Asia and Ham being in Africa. We've spoken about 
Babel, we've spoken about Nimrod, we've spoken about all of these people from everything that we've gathered so far. Can we say that Europeans, sorry, Africans were not in Europe before the Atlantic slave trade? And so here are some um, statues just to show you from the Greeks of um, uh, black people involved in their pottery. Um, let's look at it. So what you can see from the screen is how close Morocco is to Spain, literally just a little bit of a journey. You can see how close Libya is to Italy. You can see how close Egypt is to Israel and just across the waters to Greece. You can see how close Africa was. And if we know that um, Africans were definitely in Egypt, Morocco and Libya, and we can say that just a little bit across the shores were white people, we can definitely deduce just from that logic alone that black people would have been integrated with Europeans or people of lighter skin pigmentation before the Atlantic world slave trade. For the sake of those of you on the podcast, I've got pictures of pottery on the screen um, just to show you black people depicted in Greek pottery. And so, again, I tell you to look at the book Black Athena um, and you can come to your own conclusion at this point. Um, there's also the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Look into those European periods and study that. You will see that there were black people in those periods before slavery began. And so we've reached the part of ancient Greece and why ancient Greece is important in black history. <clears throat> so Greek culture influenced Roman culture, but it's also in, in influenced our culture more so than we actually realize. Greek thinking has influenced the way that we do school, secondary school, primary school, college, university. Greek thought is fully involved in our philosophy and way of thinking today. First Corinthians first 21, 22 says this, for since in the wisdom of God, God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Okay. Greeks seek, seek wisdom. Jews demand signs. Israel demands signs and, and, and superstitions and understandings and giftings, but the Greeks, just, they, they seek wisdom, they seek logic, they seek philosophy. We're seeing a, a separation between two different people groups here, okay? And so, let's get a bit deeper. Philosophy, let's look at this. Um, sorry, go back. <clears throat> All black Africans were known as Ethiopians to the ancient Greeks. As the 5th century BC historian Herodotus tells us, and their iconography, that's talking about the pottery, was narrowly defined by Greek artics in the archaic and classical periods, black, black skin colour being the primary identifying physical characteristic, it is recorded that Ethiopians were among King Xerxes, that's Daniel. It is recorded that Ethiopians were among King Xerxes' troops when Persia invaded Greece in 480 BC. Thus, the Greeks would have come into contact with large number of Africans at this time. Nonetheless, most ancient Greeks had only a vague understanding of African geography. If you look at the um, ancient Greek map, if you were to search that, you would see that ancient, the ancient Greeks had no idea how big Africa was. They thought Africa stopped at the desert. They didn't know that there was more beyond the desert. They didn't know that there was Ghana and Niger and Ivory Coast. They didn't know these things. All they knew was Ethiopia. All they knew was um, 
Egypt, all they knew was Libya and Morocco. They had no idea what was deeper across the um, Saharan desert. And so philosophy. Now, this is where I guess this should get your kind of bubbles rolling. Let's kind of talk about ancient Greece and th their impact on how we read the Bible today. Philosophy in the in Greek means lover of wisdom. Now, the Bible gives us four different types of love. We have agape, we have eros, we have storge, we have phileia. These are all different types of love that the Bible gives us. Agape love is unconditional love. Uh, eros is erotic kind of love. That, that's your sensual, that's your sexual type of love. Storge is your affectionate type of love. And phileia is your friendship type of love. And so, so when we say philosophy, we're using that word phileia. And we're adding it with the word Sophia, which means wisdom. Philosophy comes from two Greek words, philia and Sophia, which means wisdom. So philosophy means lover of wisdom. And so we're going to now realize the impact that the Greeks have had, not only on our Christian thinking, but on our culture and how we even do our education today. Okay. Now, there's a man named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, you may have heard about him in history. He was an amazing man who'd done some amazing things um, in a very, very, very short period of time. Alexander the Great was, um, he came in that period where God was silent from the book of Malachi up until the book of Matthew, from the book of Malachi up until John the Baptist. That 400 year gap is where Alexander the Great came. We see that he was born in 356 BC. And so in this time, Israel had been conquered by Babylon, but Israel had also been conquered by Persia. And so we're going to look into Greece and Rome to build our presentation right now. The Battle of Fermatplier, I can't say it. There's a battle that we see in the book of 300. I'm sorry, the, the movie 300, if you've ever watched it, that whole Spartan situation. That same battle was a real battle in history. Right. And even though that movie was an exaggeration. Right. It's a real battle that actually happened. Esther 1 1 tells us this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. This man Xerxes was a Persian, an Assyrian who had 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. This man was conquering most of the world. But in the um, book of Daniel, Daniel receives a very troubling revelation when he reads the scrolls of Jeremiah. And he begins to see these types of visions and Nebuchadnezzar comes to him and Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I'm troubled. And Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar this amazing interpretation about, you know, Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and Rome. He gives this incredible revelation about how many people are going to come and conquer Israel until the time of the Messiah. Right. Esther, um, Daniel 8.20 speaks of a ram, a ram with two horns. You can see it in the picture that I've got depicted for you. Xerxes is in the middle of two rams with two horns in this movie 300. That ram with two horns, it says in Daniel 8.20, these are the kings of Midia and Persia. Look at the picture from the book of 300, revelating what Daniel had said. Persia, their symbol was a ram and two horns. But then in Daniel 8.7, there's a prophecy where Daniel expresses not a ram, but a goat who comes from the, the, the uh, west and he comes and defeats Persia. Right. 
he, he speaks about a ram. And why is this important? I've got this on the screen for you. Um, it, it says, basically, this ram was Alexander the Great. Now, I wish I could break this down for you in depth, right? I wish I could, but I can't because this is a whole nother hour teaching. But essentially, Daniel's prophecy was so great that when people read the book of Daniel, they were like, no, this man had to be alive during the time when Persia, Greece, um, sorry, um, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome took over. They were like, his prophecy is so sound and so accurate that Daniel had to be alive after Rome had taken over because the sequence of events that takes place that Daniel prophesies about are so accurate. Anyway, what I'm trying to show you is the goat that comes in the bottom picture this ram um, that so if you look at the bottom left picture for those of you that are watching Daniel 8 20 to 21 says as for the ram that you saw with the two horns these are the kings of Media and Persia and the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king that being Alexander the Great Daniel prophesies about these animals and he says Persia is going to be taken over by a goat and that goat is Greece this is spoken about in the scriptures now this is historical right it's actually true and so after i kind of want to use this to explain something um after three thousand years after greece kind of impacted we're still using greek ideas in maths things like pythagoras theorem we're using their science the babylon and egyptian science we're using their art with which is the theaters we're using their sport with the, the gymnasium olympics the marathon our alphabet is based on a greek alphabet Greek culture even invented democracy and civilization and politics, and we still use those things today. I'm trying to give you a, a, a biblical backdrop that ties in with history for you to understand Grecian thought into the text of the Bible. And so why do I show you Alexander the Great? We have looked at Cush, we've looked at Shem, we've looked at Egypt, we have briefly touched on the wars of Magog, and we know that Mesopotamia and Babylon had black people, we know that Canaan and Egypt had black people. Years later, in this 400-year gap of silence, a young man named Alexander decides, I'm going to conquer the whole known world, and in 12 years and 8 months, this young man takes over all of those lands. He takes over Egypt. He takes over Canaan. He takes over Babylon. He takes over Mesopotamia. And he is from the land of Gog and Magog. <clears throat> I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. The Greek mind, when Alexander the Great takes over all of the known world, the Greek mind and the Greek thought begins to dominate the areas where black people once were. Greek, the Greece, the Grecians took over the known world. And when they took over the known world, the Greek thought began to override everything that everybody else once believed. And then one day in 320, um, 323, Alexander the Great died in his 33rd year of living, but he reigned for 12 years and eight months. Alexander the Great then set up four um, leaders. Those four leaders you can see in the Daniel prophecy, and then Rome came and took over. Why am I bringing Greek thought into this? The Greeks were known as conquerors. And during the Greeks' time of conquering, this is what we call the Hellenistic period. This is the period of the Hellenistics, all right? 
This period, um, as you can see on the board, it says the Hellenistic period covers the period of Mediterranean history between the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC and the emergence of the Roman Empire as significant as um, significant as signified by the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Lord, give me strength. And so Hellenist, what does Hellenist mean when we go to the definition of a Hellenist? Hellenist means this in Greek. It means one who imitates the manners and customs or the worship of the Greeks and uses the Greek tongue. That's what Hellenist means. Hellenist means one who imitates the Greeks, essentially. That's a Hellenist, all right? Acts 6.1, what do we see in the book of Acts at the spread of the church? Acts 6.1 says this, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the who? The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic Jews, we're talking about the Jews who adopted Greek manner, Greek thought, Greek customs and Greek worship. And this scripture shows us the Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews. We're seeing the split in nations between the Jews here. We're seeing Greek Jews and we're seeing Hebrew Jews, right? Important. The period that Alexander the Great took over is the period where the Hellenist began to impact. This is the period where Greek language and ideas were expanded into the non-Greek world due to Alexander's conquest. Again, this period is the 400 year gap in scripture when God was not speaking. Philosophy became God. Wisdom became God because God was silent. Wisdom became God because God was silent. The Greeks impacted the Jews. First Corinthians 1, 20 to 21 to 22. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Hebraic Jews demand signs. Hallelujah. <laughs> but the Hellenistic Greeks seek wisdom. Amen. Distinctions. Okay. So Greek history of philosophy. Let's talk about some of the philosophers of the Greek time. There was a man named Socrates. Socrates um, is the founder of, well, he's one of the founders of Western philosophy. He's one of the founders, well, he was around when democracy was developed. If you know what democracy is, democracy comes from two words, demos meaning people and kratos meaning power. Dem democracy basically means people power, right? Democracy basically means people power. Now, Socrates um, went up. So there was, a, there was an oracle. There was a witch who came up to Socrates one day. If you've watched Hercules, the cartoon, you can remember there was these witches, like Greek was just a, a place riddled. Like the way that Hercules, the cartoon kind of depicts it is how you could imagine Greek Greece was with the people who would open their thing and show you clocks and stuff. It was just a very, very, very weird place. But a witch comes up to Socrates and she basically says that there's no one wiser than Socrates in this earth. And Socrates says, what? Surely there has to be someone wiser than me. So Socrates goes on a quest to find someone smarter. He goes on a quest to find someone smarter, right? And so Socrates basically, he starts to offend people because when no one, when people weren't as smart as him, he would put them down. He would sound quite, um, he'd be mu very much puffed up. He continued to ask the people in Athens questions. When no one was smarter, 
basically Athens grew to hate Socrates because of how he was and they sentenced him to death. But prior to that, um, Socrates, he despised the democracy. He despised people power. There was a debate that he had with somebody and he said this, if you were heading out on a ship into sea, would who, um, he said, if you were going out on a ship to sea, who would you put in charge of that ship? Would you put anyone to be in charge of the ship or would you put someone who was educated about seas and ships? And the people answered, the educated people, the people who know about ships and know about the sea, we wouldn't just put anyone in power. And Socrates said this, so why do you keep thinking that anyone can be fit to judge who can be a ruler of a country? Essentially, what Socrates was saying was this, you guys have given people the will, you've given people the right to vote, but these people have never been taught how to vote. If you guys know anything, whenever it comes to council elections, whenever it comes to labor and, you know, uh, we're talking about all of these parliamentary schemes and stuff, none of us have been taught how to vote. It will just be your parents says vote for labor, vote for this, vote for that. Socrates is basically saying when you give people the power to vote and you have given people the power to vote, but you've never taught people how to vote, you're basically leading people to a sinking ship. Socrates basically disdained all of these things. Right. So Socrates grew up in this in this place. Um, he basically said that voting is a skill. It's not something that can be done by random intuition. It's a skill. And so we have to be taught how to systematically vote. Socrates came against that. Right. He hated the foolishness of voters. That's Socrates. The next one that we have is Plato. Socrates had a student named Plato. Um, so the Greeks were the first ones to set up things like citizenship. Um, they had the words polites, which is politicians. Um, they're the first ones to study the human mind and human control. They're the first ones to document document about manipulation mechanisms, how to control the way humans think. They were amazing thinkers. And so Plato kept spreading the ideas of Socrates around society. And he was basically questioning everything that was going on. And so Plato, he... he he loved Sparta. If you know anything about Sparta, it's the, again, the movie 300, that 300 Sparta, you know, they were the gladiators. They were the fighters of Greece. Plato was very much, he was an Athenian, but he was inspired by Sparta. You know, Sparta were incredible at raising soldiers. Everything about them was focused towards military strength. They were disciplined. And Plato wasn't impressed with Athens. You know, the Athenians were more focused on being rich. They were more focused on sports, you know, javelin, long jump, discus throwing. Their god Nike. So when you look at um, Nike, for example, I've even got a Nike top here. That was actually a Greek god. They were um, Athenians were impressed with celebrities and Plato wasn't suppressed with any of that. He knew that what we admire informs our conduct. So like Socrates, he wanted to prevent people from voting until they can think rationally. So this is why he set up the first university. Um, Plato is the one who set up the academia. He set up the university for people to be philosophers. He thought that if everyone was a philosopher, then the world would be a better place, right? So he created the academia. That's Socrates, that's Plato. So the Greeks were the first to invent the concept of citizenship. They were, um, they had these complicated ideas about, uh, sorry, battery's going to die. They had these complicated ideas about human authority and power. They studied how to control crowds. They studied the power of suggestion. Um, they still rule us from the grave. As I said earlier, after 3000 years, we're still using the uh, Grecian ideas of study. 
you know, we still do the Olympics till this day. That is a Greek thing. We still go to the theatre till this day. That is a Greek thing. We still have the gym and the javelin and the marathon and the gymnasium and science and all these things. Those are Greek things that were enforced into our thinking. We still have those lines of thinking today. The Grecians still rule from the grave. Interesting. And so the last one that I kind of want to speak about in regards to philosophy is Aristotle. And this is the creme de la creme. This guy right here is very important for black people. This man right here, Aristotle, is very important for black people. He was a man who studied at the Platonic Academy. So he studied under Plato, but his philosophy was more uh, it was more concerned with science and the study of biology and the study of human life. He was interested in environments and what makes people this pigmentation and what makes people that pigmentation. Aristotle is so key, so key. Read this. The natives of Asia Minor, Asian Minor, this is what Aristotle said. The natives of Asian Minor are wanting in spirit and therefore they are always in a state of subjection and slavery. Aristotle believed that those who are in Asia are naturally slaves because they lack spirit due to the warmth of their climate. <clears throat> they actually benefit from being slaves of good masters. He says, by contrast, Northern Europeans have too much spirit. They have too much spirit because of their cold climate. And so they're too wild to make good slaves. So the ones that make good slaves are those who come from hot climates. This is Aristotle's biology. This is Aristotle's thinking. Okay. He says that those in the northern Europe who are pale skinned, they have way too much spirit. So they're going to be bad slaves. But those who are in hot hemispheres, those who are in hot atmospheres, they would make great slaves. Hallelujah. And so they are too wild, basically. Like... How can I explain this? He kind of used the political organization in Greek to kind of spread this thought. There's two kind of um, extremes. How can I explain this? There's a Goldilocks kind of way of the way that he thought. It was like, this person's too hot, this person's too cold. No, this person's just right, if that makes sense. If you're too hot, then you're it's not great enough. If you're too cold, then it's not great. Whoa, whoa, this person's lukewarm. They're just right to be a slave. Do you get me? And so... What I'm trying to show, um, let's, let me read this off the screen. It says this, the Greeks believed that if you were born with unique traits, you were automatically a leader. They believed leadership is a result of inherited birth traits in the personality and nature of the individual. The majority who do not possess these traits are destined to be led. One example is if you were born with a sharp nose, blue eyes and fair skin, you were born to be a leader. Essentially, white is right. That's the doctrine. The contrast of that, the contrast of that is if you have thick lips, dark skin, nappy hair and dark eyes, you were destined by the gods to be slaves. You were destined by the gods to make, to be slaves. The argument is a, uh, um, basically his scientific explanation for the apparent fact that Asia Minor was dominated by other kingdoms. So the Persian Empire basically took over. Yeah, the Persian Empire basically took over. And when he says the Asia um the Asian, the Persians took over Asia Minor, he was saying all those that they took over were slaves. Then Aristotle basically says this, this is just the way things are. This is the way things must be. And so he finds an explanation in nature. He's saying the climate 
invokes a kind of scientific reason to make slaves. He's saying your climate, your environment means that you're a slave. The larger picture manifests basically when we realize that the ancients believed in the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Aristotle himself gives an example of a man who's branded on his arm and his child is his child is born with a birthmark and he says because the child has the same birthmark as his parent that child should be a slave he used these biological kind of undertones to say what a slave is and this came into greek thought he says slaves are slaves because they are born slaves no one's truly born free here he believed, again, I'm trying to drill it in, that your home region, your weather, your food, these things mean that, that there's a difference in your intellect, there's a difference in your motivation, there's a difference in your courage. He created a racial hierarchy of superiority due to where you were born or your skin tone. So the Greeks believed that leadership was a byproduct of providence, the divine guidance of the gods. And we know that providence is a biblical doctrine, that God is in control and God chose us as his children before we even knew him. God chose us. They've used the same concept, but they have many gods. If you're born with these traits again, then you're born over here. If you're born with these traits, then you're over here. So if you're born with white skin, a sharp nose uh, and thin lips, you're born to be a leader. But if you're born with thick lips, dark skin, nappy hair and dark eyes, you're destined by the gods to be slaves you're basically born to serve white people and even if you're a black person wearing a suit and a tie it doesn't impress them because you're just a smart slave if you have a phd you're just a smart slave so by definition today i'm the leader by destiny i was born to be a slave the greeks believe whites were chosen as leaders and blacks <laughs> blacks were destined by gods not to be leaders, but to be followers. Destined means that we have no chance. And then we get to the word barbarian. The word barbarian originated in ancient Greece and was initially used to describe all non-Greek speaking people. So if you're black, you're a barbarian. This included the Persians, the Egyptians, the Medes, the Phoenicians. It was the ancient Romans who by original definition were barbarians themselves, but they transformed the word linguistics is so important when we're looking into our Black's history, how words have changed over time. Colossians 3.11 tells us this, here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In the name of Jesus, there is no barbarian, we are all free in the name of Jesus. How? Did the white slave masters come to overlook these scriptures that are so clear in the Bible? And so the Greeks are the same ones who coined the term Ethiopia. Ethiopia was always called Kush, but the Greeks changed it to Ethiopia. So we call it Ethiopia today. That was Greeks who made us call it Ethiopia. The natural name for Ethiopia is Kush, but we call it Ethiopia because the Greeks called it Ethiopia. Let's see what the Greeks did. The Greek name Ethiopia comes from two specific words. Aphio means I burn. Ops means faith, right? So when you put Aphiopius, it's basically meaning I burn face. But how we understand it is burnt face. Ethiopia means land of the burnt face people. Greeks coined that term and we call people Ethiopians today. And we say, yeah, what's going on, my burnt face? Do you get? The Greeks impacted us and gave us that thought. Let's take it deeper. 
Here's a book um, by a man named Benjamin Isaac. And I want you to just look at the picture. For those of you on the podcast, it's a picture of a black man who seems much bigger than the white people and the black people that are around him. And it seems like he's wrestling with them. What I kind of want to introduce to you is that black people were involved in numerous roles um, in the Grecian times, the ancient Grecian times. The Greek art depicts, um, as we saw earlier in the pottery, that they were political allies, they were musicians, they were worshippers, they were soldiers, they were servants. Um, so yeah, black people were slaves, but not all of them were slaves. And Roman historian Benjamin Isaac, here's his book. The book is um, The Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity by Benjamin Isaac. In his book, um, no, do you know, matter of fact, you lot look into his book. Basically, I just want to talk about the picture that he uses here, yeah? The picture. This is the picture that this man uses. It's a depiction of a black man and six other people. And the person in the middle seems large. He seems distinct. He seems much different, much more bold, much more dominant than all the others. The other men are either under his feet in this picture or they're in his hands, unable to move. Like they, he's got them in his grasp and they can't match his strength. This black man has just got brutish strength. Why did Benjamin choose this picture for his book? Benjamin choose this picture for this reason. It's, an, it's a later rendition of a picture that was on a water jar in the 6th century. Here's the picture that Benjamin um, chose to take it from. Look very closely at the picture. If you want to find out where this picture is, I've got the source there. It's the water jar with Heracles and Borsiris about 510 BC. Notice that there are other black people inside this picture. The black person in the middle is not the only black person in this picture. Notice that there are other black people in this image. There's an Egyptian to the left and there's another one with his hands raised up. This same man that's in the middle, Heracles, is actually depicted as a white man on another jar. So the blackness in this isn't the issue. What I'm pointing out again is the black people and the white people were with one another in ancient Greece. I'm kind of, what I'm trying to show you is that black people were in Europe before the white man came to Africa. That's what I'm trying to show you here, okay? The same black man in the middle, you can have your speculation on it, but this shows that there's other black people inside the image. And the same man in the middle who's grabbing people is actually depicted as a white man in another thing. So the only reason I'm showing you is because I'm trying to show you that black people were in Europe before the Atlantic slave trade. So white people and black people actually were acquainted. So how did the white people come to the black people and take them over then? It's very interesting because we actually were integrated. How did, how, where, where did it go wrong? What happened? Again, about Greek thought. Greeks were polytheists. This means that they had multiple gods. They had Zeus, they had Apollos, Aphrodite, Hades. They had hundreds of gods. They thought that they, um, the gods were like adult humans. They were like bigger humans, giants. They were, they thought that the gods were always falling in love and always having children and always playing music and always partying. And we see the same thing in Mesopotamia with Babylon. And funny enough, when you look at Babylon, the way that Rastafari is always speaking about, speak about Babylon, Babylon this, Babylon that, and da 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 it's the exact same thing. Babylon is the founder of all paganism. Well, obviously Satan is, but Babylon is the founder of all paganism. And it's funny how Babylonian paganism actually came into Greece and most of the world. It's so interesting. The Greek rulers thought that there was a son of God as well. So we'd see Hercules as the son of God in these myths. You've got Horus, you've got Osiris, you've got you've got so many. Who else is there that's the son of God? Um, you've got Sol Invictus, you've got 
um, Mithra. You've got so many different stories about a son of God. You've got Tal Talmud, Nimrod, and Semiramis. You've got all these different stories about a son of God. It's so, 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 so interesting. But after Grecian thought, Rome decided to invade Greece. Rome decided to invade Greece. So I've given you Greece's philosophy. And then the Romans decide to step into Greece. So we know that Israel was conquered by Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then the Romans. The Romans conquer Greece. Now, one thing about Rome is when Rome would take over a place, they'd completely wipe out the whole area. When Rome would take over a place, they'd, they'd literally blitz the whole area. But when Rome took over Greece, they saw Greece as beautiful temples and their beautiful gods and their beautiful statues and their beautiful libraries. And they actually went into the Greek libraries and they were so impressed with what they saw in the Greek libraries that they started to take the Greek libraries and start to adopt Greek, Greek thinking. The Romans were military people. They're not into thinking. They're not into philosophy. They're not into that. They're into fighting. So Rome was so impressed. Instead of destroying the Greek library, the Romans took, they saved it. They took the Roman scrolls and they took the books back to Rome. And so Rome took on Greek thinking of leadership, of black people, of white is right. And we know Rome ruled most of the known world. We call it the Greco-Roman world. If you've seen that anyway, the Greco-Roman world. All right. Is how Rome took over most of the known world with Greek thinking. And so we're going to see how Rome got involved in Christianity really, really, really soon. Um, but what I kind of want to say is there's only one nation in the whole world up until this day that has ruled the whole known world until today. And that is the Roman Empire. And they had this name Caesar. They had this name Caesar. We're going to kind of get into that in a second. But they had this name Caesar. Um, Caesar. Caesar actually is a title. It's not a name. It's a title. Um, so you have Caesar Augustus, Caesar Julius or Julius Caesar. Caesar isn't a last name. It's a title. It's like when we say Messiah or Christ. That is not Jesus Christ's last name. It's a title. And so Jesus, um, Julius Caesar was is formally defined as the divine Julius. The Romans basically said that Julius Caesar is the son of God. So when Jesus Christ comes in the time of the Caesars and the Romans to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and son of God was a very, very, very huge thing to do. And so Caesar is a very important people. They take on the ancient Greek theory of leadership. And anyone who wasn't a Roman was seen as lesser. We know the term when in Rome do as Romans do. Rome basically catapulted, capitalized off of everything that the Greeks knew. And so you may or may not be aware, but Christianity was not a friend of Rome. In fact, most of the brutal killings of Christians happened in the Roman Empire. So there was a man named Emperor Nero. Um, some people say that this man was the mark of the beast, the 666. Um, interesting fingers actually about Emperor Nero. That's what some scholars believe. Emperor Nero set his whole city on fire and then blamed the Christians. So Christians were fed to lions in Colosseums. They were dragged down the streets by carts. They were crucified upside down. Paul was alleged, allegedly murdered in Rome. Um, Peter was allegedly crucified upside down in Rome. Um, and so Rome had a very, very interesting part to play. Um, it's so bad that in these times, Christians um, would not actually say that they were Christians. I've got a picture for those on the podcast. It's a picture of a fish. 
And the word for fish in Greek is ictus. Ictus means fish. And the I in the ictus stands for Jesus. The CH stands for Christus. The TH stands for Theos. And the YS stands for Jus Soter. The I is for Jesus. The CH is for Christ. The TH is for Theos, which means son of God. The YS means savior. The, the, the early Christians used that term ictus to basically define why they would do this thing. So watch this. This is what they do. When a Christian, so the Christians would not show that they were outwardly Christians out of fear of dying. So what they would do is when they suspected someone was a Christian, they would go up to him and they would draw this fish in the ground. They would draw this fish in the ground, right? And if the earth other person responded with a fish, they'd know that the person that they're with was a Christian and they'd open up. That's what the early Christians would have done to make sure that they weren't crucified. And once they knew that the person they were with was a Christian, that was it. They're now free to open up. Rome were so, so, so bad when it came to crucifixion, when it came to all of those things. Rome were brutal. And so you can imagine what this had done for the early church. But later on, there's a man named Constantine. Constantine was the emperor um, in Rome at a time. Constantine was an emperor um, in Rome at a time. And long story short, basically, Emperor Constantine is the reason why Rome transitioned from their pagan religion into Christianity. And so the Romans weren't happy with what Constantine had said. They weren't happy with it. And so in order to keep the Romans at bay, what Constantine did was he merged the paganism in Rome with Christianity. He merged two he made he merged paganism with Christianity. And I don't want to say that the Roman Catholicism is paganism. I don't want to say that. But what I can say from the early stages of Roman Catholicism is that some of it was paganistic. Why we can see Mary right now with a son behind her head because they worship the sun God. Why we can see Jesus with a son behind his head in their depictions because they worshipped a sun God. And so in order to keep the Roman people at bay, they would depict Jesus and Mary together, their mother God and their son of God and say Mary is divine. Anyway, when Constantine allowed Christianity to become the main religion. Imagine what that had done for a Christianity that was so heavily persecuted. That moment when Constantine said Christianity is the main religion in Rome, all those Christians that were living in fear of being able to express themselves, it now, it now brought out the turning point in Christianity. No longer did the believers need to hide. And so the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, hold Emperor Constantine in high regard. This brought in the doctrine of Christian emperorship in the church. This brought in the doctrine of Christian leadership into the church. This brought in the doctrine of Christian bishops. Emperorship was now responsible to God for the spiritual health of the nation. This then shifted to the bishops. The emperor was to enforce that God was properly worshipped. And this is where the Council of Nicaea comes into it. If you know anything about the councils, there was a Council of Nicaea that Constantine actually held, which was to define the right worship or the right orthodoxy of the whole church. He basically held a council and he united all the bishops from northern Africa. 
and brought these Northern Africans up to settle a debate about the divinity of Jesus Christ. And this is where we get into conversations about Arianism, the Trinitarianism, all these things come into play. Constantine is the reason why we can kind of almost deduce that there is a trinity or that Jesus is divine. He was the one who held the Council of Nicaea. But I'm not saying that it was Constantine who held us or made us understand the doctrine of the trinity. No, it was black people that were called out of the northern regions of Africa who came to this council to speak about the trinity. And so we have people like Athanasius of Alexandria, who we will talk about possibly next week. Um, and so I know I've been saying a whole load, but in the 6th century AD or the common era, in the 6th century, the Arabians invaded Egypt and they turned Egypt into a predominantly Muslim country. And so the is is Islam was more concerned with the culture in Africa and that they were worshipping Allah. They were more concerned with that, whilst Europe were more concerned with the exploitation of Africa. And so Christianity as a culture and a way of life imploded, just like Rome imploded. My point with all of this is to say this. Greek thinking, Greek thinking mixed within a Christian nation dominated the world. Greek thinking was mixed within a Christian nation. And that Christian nation with the Greek thinking began to dominate the world. The Greek thinking of white is right, mixed with Christianity, began to take over the whole known world. Rome were the only country that took over the whole known world. And so because Rome had already adopted Greek thinking, then had the scriptures, they then began to impose upon the people. And so <clears throat> there were 14 Caesars in the times of the Romans. And so Rome crushed or crumbled from the inside. They imploded because Rome had a whole load of sexual immorality. Um, the Caesars, there's a Caesar named Tiberius. Um, these guys were heavily into sexual immorality, homosexuality. Um, homosexuality. You've obviously heard about the Roman popes who are pedophiles and sleep with the boys in their congregation. And the Roman statues, I wouldn't put them up um, because they're quite graphic, but the Roman statues depict a whole load of homosexuality as well. So Rome imploded on themselves and no one could defeat Rome. Nobody could defeat Rome, but Rome defeated themselves. They rotted from the inside. And so I've got a picture here. This is Daniel's prophecy about the 10 horns and one horn that speaks. That prophecy there, we spoke about the ram and the goat. That was Persia and that was Greece. The last one is about Rome. Rome defeated themselves and crumbled from the inside. They fell apart. But as they fell apart, as they fell apart, all these little people inside Rome started scrambling for power. They started scrambling for power. Many little kingdoms came out of Rome. So here's a few of them. Spaniard, Franco. Belgia, Anglo, Portugal, Spaniard is Spain, Franco is France, Belgia is Belgium, Anglo, the Anglo-Saxons, that's England, Portugal is Portugal. All of these little kingdoms came out of Rome. So the mentality of Rome, the mentality of Greece, the mentality of Rome went into the rest of Europe. So now the whole of Europe are now seeing white as superior and blacks as inferior. And this is where colonization comes into it. The mindset of the Greeks, the mindset of the Romans went into the whole of Europe as we know it today. And this is where they saw whites as superior and blacks as inferior. <clears throat> and so colonization. 
Colonization is the expansion of Greek leadership philosophy. Going to Africa and bringing slaves over as merchandise was easy. Colonization was easy to do because of the Greek philosophy that blacks were inferior and were created to be gods. This is why African slavery was so easy. Now, slavery and colonization is the, colon is, is the legacy of a man named Christopher Columbus. Um, well, he is the main person behind colonization or the discovery of the world. There's a um, there's a there's a quote or there's a song that people used to sing, which is in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So in the 1400s, Christopher Columbus decided to sail. And so Christopher Columbus was a man who came from Spain. And when he came from Spain, basically in the 1400s, the Spanish thought that Spain was the last place to the West. They thought Spain was the last place to the West. And when they looked out over the horizon and saw the rest of the sea, the Spanish thought that if we go out into that horizon, if we sail out into that deep unknown, we're going to fall off of a flat earth. That's what the Spanish thought. And so the way that the Spanish or yeah, the Spanish Armada, the way that the Europeans would sail is they would go back towards Asia. They wouldn't sail out into that deep Atlantic because they didn't know what was out there. So they thought if you go out over there, you're going to fall off a flat earth. So they had the coin and on this coin, it says knee plus ultra. For those of you on the uh, on the um, watching this, you can see it. It says knee plus ultra. Knee plus ultra in Latin means no more beyond. Right. Their coins literally said that there's no more beyond this horizon. That's our limit. We can't go out there. And so Christian Colum um, Christopher Columbus basically said, no, nah, do you know what? I'm going to go out there. I'm not going to go back towards Asia. I'm going to go out into that deep. And he went out into the deep and then he found the Bahamas. He found other countries and he, he came back and he told people about the Indians that he met over there. Even though Columbus was ignorant about the continent, and even though Columbus was ignorant about the Americans and what he just encountered, his voyage of discovering the Bahamas changed human history very quickly. Within, in, within two years, the Pope of that time divided the world and called the America side of the world the West Indies. And he said, those are the Native Americans. These are the Indians, the Native Indians, the Native Americans. And so he said, between the Atlantic world of our side, the known world, and over there, that is the West Indies. And so mankind began to explore. Mankind began to explore the world. And many explorers followed after Christopher Columbus. During this time, they started to trade with the Native Americans, the Mayans. So where we started to study Mayan history and their pyramids and how their pyramids were actually underneath certain stars. And they had hieroglyphics of snake-like creatures coming from the skies as well. The people who explored America started to come across the Native Americans who were the Mayans. If you've ever watched the movie Apocalypto, I'll tell you to watch it. Um, and so... They basically went over and they started to do this um, trading with the Mayans. They started to trade with the Mayans and very equipment, um, quickly they, they began to develop America. Um, and so everywhere that the Europeans went, death followed. From 1494 to 1508, over 3 million people died from war and slavery. And the majority of the death didn't come from killing. The majority of the death came from disease. The Mayans died because of disease, not because of killings. The indigenous people were never exposed to things like illness and smallpox so they died from tribe to tribe and so 90 percent of native americans actually died as a result of coming into contact with europeans 
90% of the Mayans died because of coming into contact with Europeans and disease. The Europeans brought disease to the land of America. And so as a result, when the Americans came over to, um, when the Europeans came over to America, they started to establish plantations. Um, they started to establish the Atlantic slave trade. Um, and so you can maybe able to see here, here's a castle. The Europeans would travel or um, they transport Africans from places in Nigeria and Ghana, like places like Elamina Castle. Um, and they transport them across the Atlantic Ocean to countries like the Bahamas. Um, they transport them to Jamaica. They transport them to all these different countries to cultivate crops of sugarcane and tobacco and cotton. And so this system was perfected in Barbados by the British Empire. Um, and they shipped a lot of these people across the world. Now, there wasn't enough space to um, cultivate the land. And as said before, the Native um, Americans were actually starting to die because of the, the disease. So what the Europeans would do is they needed to kind of meet the demands of labor to continue doing this Atlantic trade. Um, so the Portuguese went over to Africa and they said, wait, these people are designed to be slaves anyway. You know, they're chosen by the gods to be our slaves. Why not just make them our slaves? You know, and so they decided to start taking these Africans, well, not maliciously, but they started to speak with people and say, listen, we need your people for manual labor. And so I'm going to ask you guys, when you guys make these jokes about being fresh off the boat, you know, oh, that guy's fresh off the boat, man, that guy's fresh off the boat. Those are terms that the Europeans would actually use for Africans. And funny enough, we use it today. You're fresh off the boat, you freshy. Those are terms that Europeans used for your ancestral, um, your an ancestors. You know, you're fresh off the boat. I got one. He's fresh off the boat. Rude. Watch what you're talking about. <laughs> Rude, bruv. Rude. Rude. And so 4% of America received slaves. 36 of the Caribbeans received slaves. 14% of the Spanish receives, um, Spanish or South America received slaves. And 46% of Brazil received slaves. And so while I'm kind of getting into this, I want to kind of explain to you that the Europeans didn't just come over and start snatching us. It didn't work like that. Actually, what happened was we had our own society. You know, you know that some Africans are servants to other Africans. We call them houseboys and housegirls. You know, that's my houseboy. That's my housegirl. Those are African traditions. That's the type of society structure that we have and so a lot of people in Africa had to work for their freedom. Some servants could rise to a particular position of, you know, oh, you've been a good houseboy here, have your own boys' quarters, all those kind of things. So the Europeans would come over to Africa. The Europeans would come over to Africa and they'd offer things like guns. They'd offer the Africans guns and weapons and rum and alcohol for their slaves. And so the African kings didn't hesitate to sell their own Africans. Why? Yeah, it's great. Give me more alcohol. Give me more guns. Give me more weapons. Why not? So the African kings didn't hesitate to sell their slaves. Any African that was a criminal was just sold to be slaves to the Europeans. If you were a criminal and you were in jail, your money anyway, why not? Look, I'm getting, I'm getting alcohol. I'm getting guns because of you and you're a criminal anyway. We pity you. Let's just give you over. Anyone that was from a rival tribe would be sold as a slave. So the Africans started to slave them, sell themselves. And by doing so, the African kings actually strengthened themselves against the neighboring African countries. And so Africa grew due to the slave trade. 
Then the Portuguese went over to the British and said, we found some people to work the farms. And so the British went to the west coast of Africa. Then the French found out. Then the Spanish went. Then they all came to Africa with a high demand for slaves. Give us more slaves. Give us more slaves. Give us more slaves. More weapons. More weapons. And this created competition in Africa between the African countries. Now Africa are competing against each other to give slaves to the white man. The demand of the slaves created this competition and so slavery then replaced jail in Africa. Instead of you going to jail, you were sold as a slave. And so capturing slaves became a war. Neighboring African countries would go to the other African country to capture slaves to sell to the white people. And so for the African nations to protect themselves from other African natures robbing their own people, these other African nature, uh, nations needed weapons, right? So all of it was like this big cycle. For me to defend my nation from other nations coming to rob my people to be slaves, I need to sell some of my own people to get guns to protect my people. And then it's all this big fight, this internal fight in Africa to produce slaves to protect their own people. And it messed up the African continent. It messed us up. Bad. Bad. It messed us up. And so from this picture, as I said in my last um, session, the oral traditions were in the northern hemisphere of Africa. But the oral traditions were in the southern parts. And look at, for, for the sake of all of you in the podcast, I'm showing the southern parts and where the Atlantic slave trade regions actually were. They were all in the southern regions of Africa, not the north. It wasn't in Egypt. It wasn't in Morocco. It wasn't in Ethiopia. It was all around Ivory Coast, the Gold Coast, Africa, Nigeria, Benin. It was um, Cameroon. It was all of these places, Mali, Niger, all of these places became slave trade places, the places where it was oral traditions, where we didn't have written history. Those places where we weren't writing down scriptures, we weren't writing down our stories, we were just performing for one another. Those areas became the hotbed for slavery. <sighs> and so we know the slaves encountered extreme brutality, um, you know, the women's hair were shaved to prevent them from having head lice. Um, our people were branded. We were loaded on ships to go to Africa. We were um, stacked like sardines. We would poo on each other on the ships. We would die of disease on the ships. We were thrown overboard for being sick or as a discipline or because there was not enough food on the ship to feed. So we were just thrown overboard. Many black people in those times saw white people as cannibals. Um, the children thought that the white people would come along and take them and eat them. Um, so rather than getting eaten, eaten, black people would just commit suicide or starve themselves then become a slave. And they believed that in death, their souls would return back home. Women and children were molested. Um, they were abused above deck whilst the men were stacked like sardines under deck. Um, the men were made to perform dances in order to keep them exercised. The Africans who reached the West Indies is a story that we're all too familiar with. But it affected Africa as a continent majorly. This story affected our continent so deeply. Not only did we lose over 2 million black people, but because most of the slaves were men, think about what that done for the women. Because most of the slaves were men, because they needed men for the hard labor, think about what that did to the women back home in Africa. 
when one man was still around. Think about how all the women who were longing to get pregnant would all latch onto one man in Africa. And then think about today, how we have baby fathers, baby mums, and all of these kinds of stories and how that's affected us today because a whole load of the men were taken. We look in the church today and we see that there's like seven to one men to women. It's something that needs to change. It's something that happened back in our African ancestral times and the women would all latch on to one dude because that's all that was there. <clears throat> and so, as I said, in order to keep them energized, they would brand them. They'd stack people like sardines for the sake of those of you on the podcast. You can see how close the people were when they were on the slave ships. They were so close to each other. You have to think about going over and um, seasickness and puking on each other and not having anywhere to wee or anywhere to go and take a dump. Think about how smelly that place was. Think about how disease infested that place was. Think about the smells. Think about the cries at night. Think about the torture that these black people were enduring as they were on the ship. Think about it when your woman has been snatched from beside you and she's being raped on the top of the deck. Think about it when someone has been grabbed beside you and they've been thrown overboard. Think about the torture and the humility that was happening down below on these decks as men would patrol the upstairs of these ships with guns on the clock to make sure that nobody was doing an uprising on these ships. Christianity is the white man's religion. The Holy Bible in the white man's hands and his interpretations of it have given the greatest single ideological weapon for enslaving millions of non-white human beings. Mal Malcolm X says this. Malcolm X says this. Slaves were somehow powerless or automatically converted to Christianity. That thinking that we were automatically converted to Christianity has somehow dominated our history and our culture. To the point where today, people who haven't studied the Bible or studied history outlandishly say that Christianity is a white man's religion. This thought that Christianity was imposed upon us by white people has dominated history and dominated our culture. Yes, the slave masters were Christian, but so were a whole load of the slaves as, to, as well. It wasn't just the slave masters who were Christian. A whole load of the slaves were Christian too. And so what I'm trying to show you is that many of these stories are incomplete and false. And by us continuing to perpetuate that Christianity is a white man's religion, we are being compliant in this old goal of making Christianity a white man's religion. The, the, the white man tried to do this by making Jesus Christ a white man, by turning every single hero that we see on TV white. When we get into the discussion of saying, yes, Christianity is a white man's religion, we are helping the white people who tried to impose this white is right doctrine. We're involved with them and we are aiding and abetting their mission by giving into this falsehood. We are collectively suppressing the blackness and silencing our ancestors and we are becoming our own oppression. We're killing ourselves. We're doing this to ourselves. And so am I trying to mitigate? Am I trying to nullify? Am I trying to say that what white men did in the name of Christianity is right? Am I trying to say that in the name of Christianity, the wars, the genocide, the abuse, the cultural distinction, the inequality, am I saying all of those things are right in the name of Jesus? No. People can use the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean Jesus is behind it. 
So what I'm trying to show you is to make slavery effective, it needed a racial bias. The Greek thought it to make slavery effective, it needed a racial bias it, to make it impossible for slaves and future descendants to ever receive equal status in society. Greek philosophy was whites are created to be gods and blacks are created to be slaves. So they read the Bible on us and said, we must be good. The term Negro, the term black, the term Mandingo, the term colored were all used to linguistically conceal the role of um, um, Africans and Africa's development in Christianity. Today, when I'm telling you that black people are the ones who brought Christ Christological thought and Trinitarian thought and were at the Council of Nicaea, when I tell you these things, how hard is it for you to fathom that because of the world that we're in today. I'm telling you that the 1960s wasn't so long ago. Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech wasn't so long ago. The civil rights movement wasn't so long ago. That was in the 1960s. We're in 2020, 60 years later. That was my mother's time. My mother was in a time where we were still dealing with racial bias and we're still dealing with it today. But do you know what? Do you know what? Do you know, do you know, do you know the grace about all of this? Hallelujah. Is that we are becoming more and more learned, the technological advancement of the world, everything that is happening right now in our midst, everything that we're seeing right now, the historical revelations that we're finding is allowing us to speak up. We've now got a voice. Who are you to speak? You're a black person who has looked into their history. You're a black person who's heard these things and can further improve and nurture and research deeper to find your biblical roots, your origins. You're a person that can speak truth to power. The geography of the Old Testament is a key to showing us that Africa is the foundation of the Bible, not Europe. What I showed you in session one should show you the geography of the Old Testament is that Africa is the foundation of the scriptures, not Europe. The reason we have black Hebrew Israelites today and people screaming out against Christ is because these men used the name of Jesus as a part of a manipulation. Jesus said, you must be nice. You must be nice slaves and you'll go to heaven. Imagine the manipulation. Jesus said in his word, because I need to stress it again. Because of the oral traditions of Southern America, because of the oral traditions that Southern America would do, where they would sit down around campfires and speak, nobody was writing. I'm not saying that we weren't intellectual, but I'm saying no, nobody could read these texts that had been translated. We didn't know what the Bible had said. All we knew was oral tradition. So when someone says, I'm reading this and this says Jesus, says that you must be a nice slave and you'll go to heaven. Imagine the manipulation that's going into an unlearned people who's lost their right of their own linguistics, who's lost the right of their own last name, who's lost the right for their own free will. And then another person's coming and saying, this is what this text says that you are a part of. You are a Christian before we came and now I'm coming to tell you what the Bible says. They're telling, they're saying, if you go to heaven, then you'll get, you'll, you'll get shoes in, in heaven. You can't get them now, but you'll get the shoes in heaven. Imagine that. So the slaves are on the farms and the slaves are singing to one, an one another. I've got shoes. I've got shoes. All of God's children are going to have shoes. The slaves are singing these types of songs to one another on the plantations about the promised land, about these things that the white man has enforced upon them because of the scriptures. In other words, the master gets their, their, their blessing now, but black people gets their blessing when we go to heaven. And so today, black people are so caught up on going to heaven that we're missing our impact on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Black people are so focused with heaven today. Why? Why? Because of what's been imposed on us through European thought, brainwashing, 
brainwashing. If you if you read slavery songs, if you read slavery songs, these songs make sure you never rise above. These songs make sure you never rise above. And so, as I said, visual representations of Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes, which is unbiblically founded because we see in the book of Revelation that his feet is as burnished bronze. And whether you want to use allegory or not, what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus Christ, these depictions continue to alter the way that we see things. It makes us lesser than. It makes us feel out of place when we even walk into a lift with a white person. Why do I walk into a lift with a white person and feel like I'm I'm, I'm intimidating them? What's all that about? <sighs> the Ashkenazi Jews that I spoke about with Japheth. The Ashkenazi Jews. Remember, I spoke about Japheth, Ham, and Kush, and and sorry, um, Shem, Japheth, Ashkenaz. These are the Ashkenazi Jews today. They dominate the cultural appearance of our representation of Judaism today. When we think of Jews, we think of this person. But what about the Ethiopian Jews? What about the Ethiopian Jews? The Hebraic Jews. What about them? What I'm showing you is how so many things have been flooded in front of our minds that we can't even logically step back and say, I'm going to come against everything that I've been taught. I'm going to unlearn and I'm going to look at my history and see what my history has to say. The Ethiopian Jews are known for being the ones who possess ancient literature. The African Jews representation in the world is so limited today. And so for 394 years, 400 years, they had us on these islands and made us believe that we were born to clean their houses, that we were created to plant their corn, that we were sent by God to wash their clothes and cook for their children. Oh, and by the way, if you have no charisma, you must be seen and not heard. So when you look at movies like Harriet Tubman and Django and 12 Years a Slave and you see the black woman inside the kitchen and she's serving them food and she stands to the side like this. What was imposed on black people is be seen and not heard. We don't want to hear your voice. We don't want to hear what you have to say. So you're supposed to work and not be seen. Think about how that impacts you in your workplace today. When you want to kind of speak up when you're at the executive table and you think, no, because I'm black, maybe they'll think something about me. You are supposed to work and not be seen. So the slave women running around the kitchen are not allowed to be seen when the master has friends over. And that's why a lot of black people are timid today. Timidity was taught. That's why when a black man, a black man stands up and speaks. That's why when a black man stands up and speaks, it makes people nervous because you're not behaving as a black person. You're supposed to be seen and not heard. You're not behaving. You're not behaving. You are not behaving. And so, so now you wonder why Martin Luther King was a problem because he was a black man who was talking loud and you're not supposed to talk so loud, my friend. Stay in your southern church with your stained glass window and shout to yourself, shout to your God. Don't come out here and try and impact the world. And black churches are still stuck within their churches. Black churches are still stuck within their four worlds, not their four walls, not knowing that they can step out and branch into a world and impact a world. We've been taught to remain silent. <clears throat> and so I put up a source. Sorry, I'm kind of getting passionate. I put up a source for you all. Um, to read um, is in the history and heritage of African-American churches, a way out of no way. Um, Africans, the historical parents of Christianity, this quote says, listen to how profound this quote is. Thus, Africans, the historical parents of Christianity, 
now become the children of Christianity. Africans, Africans, the historical parents of Christianity now become the children of Christianity. How could European colonists find biblical reason to enslave a dark continent that was apparently uncivilized if Christianity's true developmental doctrinal and theological history was revealed to be out of Africa. The truth is that Africa civilized Europe, not the other way around. The truth is that Africa civilized Europe, not the other way around. Read that book that I've put up. Um, Jesus. I'm coming to a close, by the way. Um, the transatlantic slave trade's usage of Christianity as a tool for conversion and leg um, legitimizing was both transparent and political. Africans were sold a degrading and adulterated brand of Christianity that harmfully, forcefully removed our practices, our systems, our beliefs, our traditions, our cultures, our memory, our tribal histories. We were sold a degrading and perverted brand of Christianity. And so, Jesus, Jesus, um, we were converted, um, we were converted to Christianity, we were converted to their version of Christianity, and how does this work with scriptures like Galatians 3, which says there is no longer fr um, free, um, but all are one in Christ, and a scripture that's against slavery, how did they kind of deal with that, what did slave masters do, the slave masters baptised black people into a religion and said no, they said you've been baptized into a Christian religion with a social hierarchy and they created the curse of Ham as a tool to rationalize slavery. So to all black Hebrew Israelites, jump off of the curse of Ham. You're not under a curse. And I, I, I really need to bring that. Someone spoke about the curse of Ham last week. The curse of Ham is something that was created to degrade you. Okay, we're all created in the image of God. We were not created to be a subservient race. We were all created in the image of God. The curse of Ham is what breeds white supremacy, is what breeds white hierarchy and the logic of slavery. So the curse of Ham is a tool to suppress you and oppress you. That's why you black Hebrew Israelites are so angry. You're feeding into something that was forced onto you and you don't realize it. I don't know, you may think, that I'm, oh, this guy is so sarcastic and whatnot. You know, I'm just annoyed, personally. I'm annoyed. And so as I wrap, wrap up, we were fraudulently taught. We were brainwashed through 10 generations, over 400 years. We were brainwashed. And we still, even though we were brainwashed, we still fought theologically and recognized and reasoned and challenged and even generated ideas about God and the Bible and our faith. Even whilst we were on plantations, even whilst we couldn't read the scriptures, we would have one page of Exodus and we would reason who God is off of this one page. Black liberation theology about what Moses had done for the Israelites, about how black slaves identified themselves with the children of Israel and how God slaved, um, God freed the, the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. Black liberation theology. And what the Hebrews did with their one page of scripture about Moses is they said what God did for the children of Israel in history, God is going to do for us too. God is going to deliver us out of their hand. And so just as Moses' people were enslaved for 400 years, 
how long were black people enslaved for in America? 400 years. And so what did they call Harriet Tubman? They called her the Black Moses. What do you hear still being preached in black America today? The promised land, the promised land, the promised land, and that there's something greater and that there's something more for us. And so black liberation theology is still involved in our theology today. And I think what needs to be done is we need to recognize that we are all born in the image of God and we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord and his blood sanctified, saved and washed us and redeemed us. And we are now a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. You are royalty in the eyes of God. You were always royalty. You have always been royalty and you will be royalty when you go to the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I think we need to kind of identify who we are as people and stop allowing skin tones and pigmentation and racial biases and social hierarchies to identify who we are. I think as black people, we're the only people that can degrade ourselves. And I'm going to swear, sorry for the sake of this podcast, but we're the only people that say being a fuck is cool and being a fuck is cool and doing twerking is cool. We're the only people that degrade ourselves. What other people do you know talk about, oh yeah, that's my gangster and that's wicked and that's bad and changes good synonyms for bad synonyms. And we say, that's so sick. You're using negative connotations for good things. Think about the way that we speak about ourselves. The only people that do that to themselves are black people. And so we need to change the narrative. When we speak about I'm in the ends, I'm in the ends. Yeah, you're in the ends. You're at the end. There's no, there's nothing more for you in the ends. Get out of the ends. There's a bigger horizon in this world. Black people are the only people that do that to themselves. The only people. I'm coming to call into existence what's always been there. We're God's people. We're God's. We're, 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 we've been born in the image of God. We were there from the origins, the, the the beginning points of the Bible. Am I saying that God preferences black people over white people? No, it's not a matter of skin pigmentation. But you, as a black, you've been sold a bad, bad, bad story. You've been dealt the wrong cards. And at this point, allow there to be a change in your thinking, in the name of Jesus. And so, boom. Um, for all of you, I swear to you, I'm wrapping up now. I know I've been here for a very long time. The legacy of the black church today comes from a legacy of an invisible institution. Our churches weren't called St. Paul's and St. Barnabas and set up as cathedrals. We've never had those types of churches. We didn't have the European way of church. No, in our slavery times, what we had was an invisible ecclesia. We had an invisible church on the plantations an invisible church. We, we were a people who can, we're a people who can meet in our homes and do church, a people who have a history of being a community reflecting rich global history with traditions and practices and beliefs. We were present at the founding of the church at the day of Pentecost. We have been involved in the theological grounding of the church and we have founded the oldest Christian community in the world, which is the Ethiopian church. Christian history is black history. And so I'm trying to show you that we are still an invisible ecclesia. And we still have that power back in us. The invisible God who fights on our behalf. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. And so I'm going to read this remark from Dwight Hopkins. He says this, through scriptural insights, theological imagination and direct contact with God, 
black bondsmen and bondswomen combine faith instincts from their African traditional religions with the justice message of the Christian gospel and planted the seeds for a black theology expressed through politics and culture. By reconciling their spirituality with their material reality, African-Americans created an invisible institution. Participants formed informal groups that were in invisible, that is, slaves intentionally met, organized and practiced in secret, often quite literally in the bushes and at night. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so that is my uh, presentation for you all today, um, just in regards to how we kind of got to this place of slavery being imposed upon us, um, how white people infused it and perverted the gospel, perverted Christianity to bring it to us. That is the presentation of how we kind of got to this place today. I hope it blessed you. Um, I hope it gave you some insight. I hope it gave you some things to think about. And I hope for the sake of um, everything that I hope in the name of Jesus that you would not just take what I've said today, but you would improve upon it, that you would, you know, nurture it, that you would carry your voice and speak the same truth to people and allow everybody around the world to come into this truth in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Bro, <laughs> this is a loaded night, man. <laughs> Me and my wife have just been shaking our heads. <laughs> wow. Oh, my days. Goodness me. Even moments of sadness for the slavery part. It's just like sometimes rehearsing history just makes you feel like, wow, did that actually really happen? Crazy, man. Crazy. But that was beautiful, guys. Guys, wasn't that a journey? I'm t the comments, you can't see the comments, but the comments tonight have been off the heezy, but literally everybody's just been in. Everyone's everyone's just been in there. <laughs> what, 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 I don't know what to call this, man. But bro, awesome. Guys, I hope you are blessed. The video is gonna be up. Please like, subscribe, share it with your friends and family. You know, this is almost taking us on a journey, you know, a long one, <laughs> but necessary <laughs> journey that, that builds up, you know what I'm saying? A, a platform to what we see happening today and also where the narrative got lost and so many different thoughts there from the, you know, my favorite part was the Greek philosophy. That was my favorite part. I think that part played the pinnacle moment of where the, the Western world that we have today is actually founded upon. And we're still seeing the power of football, of an idea, the power of logos, <laughs> how <Right>. that, <laughs> Trust you know, me. literally, and how Jesus himself came and was born in a particular time and region on the earth. And even his message of simply being called the son of God, how radical that was, you know what I mean? And how even now, man, I'm, bro, I'm praying that our radicalism will come back to the, to, to, to the, the church. name of Jesus. Really, um, yes. Yeah. I really am because yeah. in the comments when you're talking about the fish and the sand and whatnot, I'm saying, you know what? We're taking for granted our Christian liberty <laughs> that we've got no. today. And there's so much work to be done. But this is beautiful, man. So guys, no. we're going to be coming back again next week, Monday, for session number three. I want you to... Can I just put Yes, go Again, these, these books, The Gods of Africa, The Gods of the Bible pre-slavery Christianity and how Africa shaped the Christian mind by Thomas Oden, very insightful and very big, very like strong books that 
I'd say that all of you should actually definitely read. So please get them when you do. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be adding that to my library, bro. <laughs> Amazon basket and all sorts. <laughs> but, bro, I want to end in prayer. I'm going to let these people go. They've been, they've been tiring us for two hours. <laughs> uh, in Jesus' name. Father, I just want to thank you um, for tonight. I want to thank you for the seeds that were sown. I want to thank you for the knowledge, the insight that was shared. I want to thank you for what you have done that is not visible to the naked eye, but we know that in the hearts of men, truth is setting people free. Truth is giving people a new perspective. Truth is renewing our minds and causing us to be transformed into your likeness. And we pray that you would even grace all of us to be beacons of the word of truth, to become students of the word, to become people who who um, who speak a gospel that that demonstrates justice and peace, oh God, that speaks of love, oh God, and speaks of you reconciling the world unto yourself. So we pray, Father, may you um, even even imprint upon our hearts a mindset of the prayer that you prayed whilst you were here, that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. 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 Bro, bless you. People of God, bless you. Next week, 7.30, we'll see ya. Blessings.